There's the sort of like part of the school where we know what you need to know and you will learn it whether you want to or not. And then there's the part where you come together to produce something that you think is valuable for an external audience. And we call that the sort of the core and the periphery and we think the periphery is more vital than the core. So if you're familiar with our work here at Modern Learners, one of the things we talk quite a bit about are the unpleasant truths about education. They're these things that we don't really want to admit to ourselves, but when we hear them, we kind of nod our heads and go, yeah, that's that's really the way it is. So I want to broach a new one here that we haven't talked about. And really, it's not our unpleasant truth. It's the unpleasant truth that came to the authors of a interesting new book called in Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School. And Jal Mehta of the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Sarah Fine, who runs High Tech High's Graduate School of Education, both came to this conclusion after a long-term study of four very different high schools from around the United States. And here's what they concluded that kids learn more in extracurriculars, like sports and theater and newspapers and things like that, than they do in the classroom. And when you first hear that, it doesn't sound quite right, because kids should be doing most of their learning in classrooms. But when you think about it, and when you reflect back on your own experience, and if you are a parent and you think about your kids, you kind of start nodding your head and going, yeah, that is an unpleasant truth, that kids learn more outside of the classroom than they do inside of the classroom. And for me, I know this as a parent who have two kids who, when they were in high school, did a lot of athletics and dabbled in a lot of other activities that they were interested in. And I know it too, looking back on my own high school experience, where I learned more being a part of the school newspaper and playing baseball in terms of not only how to do those things at depth, but also how to work with other people, how to articulate my thoughts, how to write better. I learned more in those experiences than I did in the classroom. So when you think about the title of this book, Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School, it's interesting, isn't it, that one way to do that might be to take the experiences that kids have in their extracurriculars or in the periphery, as Jal called it in our little intro there, and try to replicate those experiences more in the core, in what happens in classrooms. This interview that we did, that Bruce and I did with Jal and Sarah, I found it really interesting. And I know you're going to find it interesting as well, but the book is fascinating. And it is an in-depth look at um, a progressive high school, which I think most of us, they don't name any of these schools in the book, but I think most of us who are in education circles talking about this stuff know right away what school that is. They also look at a no excuses high school, which is um, one of those places that is highly regimented and very structured and um, usually is for kids who don't come from the best circumstances in life. They look at an international baccalaureate school which is driven primarily by a very kind of concrete curriculum and and some some big tests at the end and then they look at a comprehensive public high school and even though in every one of those instances they find examples of deeper learning happening times when kids are going into depth and finding mastery they also find that in every one of those schools, there are barriers, there are challenges with those opportunities. Some are doing it a little bit better than others, but there's no one script or no one recipe that um, gets us to those types of experiences um, more and more in classrooms rather than happening kind of on their own in those, in those outside the classroom activities. So... I think you're going to enjoy this podcast. Uh, I think uh, they have a lot of interesting perspectives on what learning is and, and what it looks like and how it happens. And uh, it was a real privilege to get some time to spend with both of them and talk about their book, Highly Recommended. 
Just want to let you know if you are, if you happen to be listening to this podcast before June 17th, 2019, um, that week we're going to have a whole bunch of uh, new Modern Learners Crowdcast events, which are going to feature a whole bunch of learning and leadership topics for your summer learning. Um, they're going to be one-hour events, uh, and what they are basically are ideas that are being shared by some course creators of our brand new Modern Learn Learners courses uh, that are being released in the coming weeks. We are super excited about a lot of these titles, and uh, they will be out in the end of June. If you are interested in pursuing some professional learning that we think is relevant to the moment, uh, we hope you check those out. But even if you're listening after the fact, either before or after the fact, if you want to watch those Crowdcast events, you can always go to crowdcast.io slash mlteam and check them out. But for now, let's get right to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And if you like what you're hearing, we'd love it if you went to iTunes and gave us a rating and a review. And tell your friends about Modern Learners and all of the work that we're doing uh, we are trying to change the experience of school for kids around the world, and we'd love it if you joined us in that work. Cheers, everyone. So I want to jump into it really at a place where we start a lot of our conversations, to be honest, and, and I think it's probably one of the most important questions, but since uh, we are talking about deeper learning, I'm just curious, how do you guys define learning? I mean, what is it? I mean, if we're going to go deeper into something, then what is it that we're going deeper into? So. If, if you wouldn't mind maybe just articulating a little bit about what is learning um, in the ways that you think about it when you come to this work. So we talk about deeper learning as emerging at the uh, intersection of mastery, identity, and creativity. So mastery is developing knowledge and skill. Identity is becoming more uh, invested or connected to a domain. And creativity is not just uh, taking in knowledge, but also creating or making something. Um, and uh, I think we like that definition because it brings together a lot of different uh, elements of learning. It brings together um, the, the, the cognitive parts with the more uh, affective parts. Um, um, and so in to be, I guess, more concrete, you know, in environments where it seemed like kids were um, you know, environments where kids could answer like a second question about something. I feel like that's a that's a that's a good test for how much how sort of deeply you understand something. So, uh, you know, shallow learning, label the parts of the cell, deeper learning, understand what would happen if one part of the cell was missing, because then you understand the functions that different parts of the cell play and how they interrelate and why. And so when kids go on journeys where and not just kids, not just in school, when people go on journeys where they become more deeply learned about something, we observed that it generally took some sort of pattern, which looks sort of like a, a spiral where uh, you're just, you're trying to, to do something um, that leads to development of knowledge and skill. You become more invested in it. That leads to a change in identity. The change in identity connects to the point piece about identity connects to ideas around uh, belonging, race, gender, does this space welcome people like me? Do I feel sort of comfortable and engaged in this space? Um, and then that leads back to creativity. Sarah, have you got a sense of uh, what, it, what's your thoughts about the way you've described or defined learning? Do you think that, that embraces um, the breadth of areas that you explored? Yeah, I, I do. I, th I think that the one thing I would add to what Jal said is that you know, le learning can start at any point in that spiral, right? So in some cases we see that the reason to learn is that you're trying to create something, right? Like there's a need to either an artificial need produced by your teacher and the learning context you're in, or in some cases uh, more often outside of school, an authentic need to produce something or do something uh, that, you know, for some reason that's authentic to you to begin with. Um, and you know that ideally that, that can be a starting point, right? It's not always a starting point of you need to know X or have some mastery of Y, um, although that can also be a starting point, right? That's more commonly the starting point in schools as we have, you know, teachers think of a set of knowledge and skills they want kids to have. Um, but I, I think the important point is that in the spaces we saw where really deep learning was happening, those three components, creativity, mastery, identity were 
sort of mutually reinforcing, right? Like as you get better at something, you see yourself as somebody who blank. Um, and then you, you know, as you see yourself as somebody who you have a desire to get better, to learn more, you, you start seeking out other people who work in that domain. Um, and so there's, you know, it's, it's a spiral. I think spiral is a nice metaphor just because it's, it's continuous and it's not, you know, it's not just like one fixed moment. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, this is maybe more a terminology point, but people say, all right, what's, you use the words powerful learning, you use the words deep learning, what do you mean? And uh, I think we're nailed down for ourselves that powerful learning is the kind of thing that can happen, you know, in an hour, right? Like you can have a powerful learning experience curated or not curated for you. Um, but deep learning is the kind of thing that happens over time that you really can't imagine those spirals happening without sort of continued sort of repetitive um, uh, exposure to and, and engagement with a, a subject or a domain. And so sort of the deep learning is like the long-term outcome and the powerful learning is something that might sort of happen iteratively along the way. Is there a difference, do you think, in terms of the long-term retention of authentic and inauthentic learning? Because I think one of the things that that became, becomes obvious in reading um, your book, but also in a lot of the visits that we make in schools, is that a lot of what kids, a, a lot of the learning environments that kids are in are inauthentic. I mean, they, they really aren't driven so much by their own personal interests or passions. They are uh, learning how to do school more often than not. You know, what do I need to do in order to get to this particular outcome or whatever else? Um, I mean, I have two children too, and I see that, I saw that all the time when they were in school. So, um, I mean, I, I, get, I guess the question is, is authentic learning really learning? I, I was with you up till that last uh, point. <laughs> uh, well, because I think that a lot of the things that my kids learned in an in, inauthentic way, they didn't, it didn't stick. I yeah. mean, if, if, is if inauthentic them... learning really learning? That's your right. question. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, you know, Rick, maybe a little bit, but like mainly we agree with the thrust of your question, which is that, um, you know, kids like learn in theory many, many, many things, but like of those things, what they could actually you know, do something with, recall a few years later, understand the interrelationship between that and something which is one adjacent to it, et cetera, is pretty low. Um, and in the book, we talk a lot about, you're probably gonna ask us about this at some point, but we talk a lot about um, extracurriculars uh, and clubs, right. and electives as arenas. And I think, you know, if, if I gave a sort of group of adults a quiz about, you know, mitochondria, Newton's laws, French Revolution, like things that people definitely can't, like it passed by them while they were in school. They passed a test on this at some point. Uh, and then if you asked, you know, someone who had been, you know, a soccer player, like what a corner kick is or how you should position, or if you asked someone who'd worked on a newspaper, how to write a lead, like people will remember the answers to those questions because it was part of something that they were committed to. They did it a lot of times. They looked at it from a lot of angles. And so um, I'm still looking for some research. I mean, people have estimated that people re remember about 20 to 30% of the things they look, they learned in high school. That seems pretty high to me, uh, but I, I'd love to see some more detailed research on that point. So just to talk specifically about part of the book that I think really got to me was not just what you wrote about, but how you wrote about it. I loved the strategy you took in the work that you did. And I loved the, the way you then presented the structure you put in the book in doing that, in that, you know, you went about this in a very open way. Um, you know, um, you mentioned, I think David Cohen's comment, you know, how'd you go finding those schools? And, and you were both very open about um, somewhat some surprise that maybe a lot of the places you went to didn't quite fulfill expectations. <laughs> The way you expressed that and the context you used, I think really um, laid a solid foundation then as you built through the book with the examples that you gave and then how you came to the conclusions you got to. And I, th I think that's what to me um, is, is why the book I think will have enormous impact because people, you haven't gone into this with something in mind, you've gone into it with a very open mind um, and you've, you've reached out as wide as you can and then drawn in the examples and talked about 
why parts of it weren't what you expected and you know what really disappointed you but out of it you've got the essence of what I think you were looking for and I think what people are looking for today and that is that you know deeper learning isn't just in one little box in one little school in one little sort of structure of pedagogy it's not something that just comes as for instance the best example would be most people would would align the notion of deeper learning probably with what you call Dewey High School which is your project based school you've gone out and said well no it's a, it's it's broader than that there's a much better perspective we should take on all of this and i think the way you've done that firstly is is inclusive it doesn't isolate people in in where they are and it and it says to them that this can be something that everyone can strive for but I think then your analysis of that is is what really makes the book so impactful. And I think the, the key part is then you fit in um, Tyak and Larry Cuban's grammar of school as an overview on that, which sort of wraps the whole thing together. So to me, that's the magic of this book. I think you have, you've really gone in with an open mind and the way you've written about it, I think includes an extraordinary breadth of people who are in, in schools out there today, and I think they'll all benefit from reading it. Was that your intent when you started, or did you really go about it with a more specific uh, focus or goal in mind? Um, that's a good question. I, I'm, I'm also still puzzling over the authenticity point, so I'm trying to imagine how to bridge those two, <laughs> the two answers. I think like, for example, um, one of our key cases uh, if you've read that, is, is about a school that has adopted the International Baccalaureate curriculum, uh, which is very, very different than the, the Dewey High project-based uh, school that we write about, right? And, and to your point, I think especially with, especially with those two schools felt genuinely pluralistic in our sort of admiration for what they were doing and how they were trying to do it and how far they had gotten, especially by comparison to other schools. And so, you know, um, I I think the piece around authenticity, like I ha I think I learned from this project and continue to try to hold on to the idea that authenticity is very personalized, right? There is no monolith that is authenticity because you know learners are so different from each other, and what is authentic, meaning sort of personally meaningful, and um, sort of has real hooks for for one learner may not have hooks for another, and so there there's no you know, on the one hand, it doesn't let us doesn't let us, you know, opt out and cop out and say, well, you know, everybody's different, so we'll just keep doing what we do. But it does mean that uh, at a place like IB High, for example, kids, it was the work that kids were being asked to do felt real, felt authentic enough to them for a variety of reasons, sort of including the social uh, construction of meaning in that school, the way that the community supported them in doing what was sort of seen as like really hard work like we are not the kind of kids who normally get to do this work but we're really we're going for it um it was very heady work it was not the kind of work that a place a project-based school might see as being the, the pinnacle of authentic and deep learning and yet the kids were learning a lot they were hanging on to it they were able to talk in really rich ways about it and they for the most part with some exceptions really felt like it was something that that meant something had value to them and so I think um, it's something I work with my teacher candidates on because I run now a, a teacher training preparation program where like the question is what what are kids interested? What what will feel authentic to them or authentic enough for them to engage in a way that then sort of spirals uh, in the way we described? And, you know, how can we learn about what our kids care about, where they come from, who they are, who they want to become? And then how do we construct learning experiences that respond to that uh, and build on it and tap into it? um versus you know starting with a vacuum or starting you know with some notion that you know these 17 standards are what we need to do by the time you end third grade just the book really was a a, a journey and uh you know i can remember the year before we started writing lots of different memos at the time the school the project was called good schools beyond test scores and it was in the no child left behind era and we were trying to look for uh, sort of different varieties of schools that were good in different ways. And that's um, that's where we started. And then, um, but we couldn't come up with any sampling frame that really, you know, fit everything that we were trying to do. And then like after, you know, six or eight months of like memoing, we were like, forget it. Like we're not getting anywhere. Let's just like pick one school that we think is going to be in the study regardless of what we do. And then let's go there and see what we learn. 
And Sarah went to the school that became Dewey High. And like within like two weeks, like a lot of the stuff we thought we knew turned out to be wrong. And some of the things we were looking for changed and so on and so forth. Um, so the, the process was very um, iterative. The first year was very disappointing. We went to a lot of recommended schools and uh, there were some really lively, intellectual, intellectually challenging classrooms, but a lot that were not. And if you talk to us after the first year, I can remember going to foundation meetings or policy meetings and people would be like, we're going to, you know, change this assessment or create this standard. And I was like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Like if you actually were out in the schools, like you would know how difficult it was to make change. And then we were sort of like, that's not who we want to be. We don't want to be that that guy. And so then we sort of gradually refocused and over time, um, and so the book sort of reflects that for people who haven't read the book, we kind of, um, we put all of the depressing data in chapter one, and then <laughs> we focus all of the subsequent chapters on uh, either different school models or collections of teachers or extracurriculars where kind of more promising things were happening and try to understand why they were um, different from the other things that we saw. Um, we also like, we started by thinking we were going to profile schools and then we came to realize that, well, wait a minute, like mm -hmm. policy, history, districts, etc., are really affecting what's possible within schools. And so we ended up with a frame that sort of moved back and forth between the broader lens and the more specific one. So if there's anybody else out there sort of contemplating a project, like, Maybe you could do it a little faster than we did, but I, I do think there is something to be said for, you know, going in with like our sort of core idea didn't change that much. Like we wanted to sort of capture some version of goodness and understand like how it happened. But then within that, pretty much everything changed along the way. And, uh, you know, I think if, if you learned things that you yourself didn't know when you started, chances are that somebody else will learn something too. I wonder yeah, just to part back on, on Will's comment there, if I just make the thought, just that process I think adds real authenticity to the book and, and the research. That so many books in this field are written about a, a snapshot of schools that are selected for all sorts of reasons, not with the breadth of vision that you've had about this. And they've been written about in a very narrow perspective. And I think that's what I think that's what's going to have the real impact from the book. Well, that, that's the other thing that, that was interesting to us just quickly is that, um, you know, schools are not static places. Um, and so, you know, they can go backward as well as forward. That's also, you know, useful to recognize. But, um, you know, if you read the book, you'll realize that the two first case studies in the book, No Excuses High and Dewey High, uh, in both cases, we did the case studies in, you know, 2010, 2011, I think maybe 2012. And then by the time we were like finalizing the chapters of those books, we felt compelled to go back because it felt like, okay, five years later, what has happened? The policy environment has shifted. We know these schools are places committed to improvement. And sure enough, when we went back, both schools, they weren't profoundly different, um, but they, they were, you know, they had evolved in very interesting ways. So that's the other thing I think as some sort of longitudinal, like we tend to think a school is one thing, but having lived inside of schools for 15 years, there's many stories you can tell about any given school and then over time those stories shift. I thought what was what was really interesting and compelling too was um, you, you took three very different schools obviously and yet I think the one thing that that connected all of them was and I think you said this a number of times too is that each one of them had a very clear vision for the type of, of environment and experience they wanted kids to have. They were very different in terms of what that looked like but that clarity of vision, I think, was something obviously that allowed them um, and that coherence. I mean, that's another thing we talk a lot about in terms of, you know, schools have a lot of incoherent language. Again, going back to that, what is learning question? I mean, most schools have huge struggles just defining what they mean by learning. Um, if you, you know, talk to 10 different people, you get 10 different answers. But, but can you talk a little bit about how, how important having that coherent vision is um, and and how that kind of plays out in terms of the 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 it felt like you had to kind of define deeper learning a little bit differently in each one of those contexts. Would that be accurate? Or you know what I'm saying? So how much does vision really determine how you define deeper learning in whatever context you're in? I guess that's the question. 
the thing to remember is that, you know, historically schools have been loosely coupled systems, which means that, you know, there's a lot of autonomy from classroom to classroom. And that can be great if you have wonderful teachers and it can be less great if you have, uh, you know, teachers who are sort of a little earlier and they're thinking about teaching. And so in a lot of schools, what we saw was, you know, basically like from classroom to classroom was just sort of the sum total of what individual teachers knew what knew how to do. And sometimes that was fantastic and sometimes it wasn't. Um, and so the three schools we profiled were interesting because they had broken that pattern, that there was more similarity in the ways in which the teachers taught. Um, now, like, you know, some people are probably listening to this and thinking, well, that's not great. Like who wants sort of like standardized education? But I think our, our perspective is more like, you know, from the perspective of the kid, the hope is that each classroom they walk into creates, gives them sort of powerful learning experiences. And if that's going to happen, you can't just depend on the knowledge and skill of each individual teacher. So to your uh, to your question, Will, the, um, the ways in which the schools did that was they just got a lot more specific about what they thought good learning uh, looked like. It came to the point where if we went to a school and the uh, and the principal said, we said to the principal, like, well, what's your, what's your pedagogical vision? And they said to close the achievement gap, we might as well just turn around and walk out. Not because their heart was in the right place, not because they weren't trying to sort of do some of the right things, but because they didn't really know the answer to the question we were asking. They didn't know what they wanted. And so um, in the absence of that, uh, they got a wide uh, variance. And so in the three schools we profiled, in the Dewey High School as a project-based school, the what they wanted was really high quality projects and they had all sorts of mechanisms for uh, public exhibitions and ways of seeing specifically what that looks like. In IB school, it was around certain, around the learner profile of the IB. And then the No Excuses School, it was around, uh, like it was literally around like AP tests and things like that. Um, and we sort of, are ambivalent about that to some degree in terms of APs and deeper learning and all that. But in terms of like having a vision which organized instruction, they had that. And so we were commended them for that. Yeah, yeah and you, you would agree that it's better to have a vision that maybe we don't agree with that everyone subscribes to in that, in that school community because at least it gives kids a more consistent, a more, you know, they're not guessing all the time as to what the experience is gonna be and what they need to succeed. It's very clear within those contexts, what that is for them. I, I think it's, a, yes, and I think we would say, so to go back to the first piece around those three nodes, so identity, creativity, and uh, mastery, I, I think we saw over time, we came to see schools that did have any kind of vision, shared vision, you know, we could, we could kind of map their visions based on those three things, like, you know, to what extent does their vision, is their vision heavy on one or maybe two of those? Uh, and where are they maybe falling short on the third? And that's, you know, so like a, a no excuses high is very, very strong. They have a, a particular vision of what mastery means and how you would measure it, which we could talk about longer. Um, but, you know, they, they were sort of all in on that. And, and they themselves, at least some of the folks we talked to would acknowledge that the, the work they had to do had to do with you know, paying more attention to who students were, where they came from, uh, treating their uh, backgrounds as assets rather than deficits, you know, so the identity piece and the creativity piece were not um, as rich there, but at Dewey High it was the inverse, right? Dewey High students are constantly making stuff, you know, towards uh, purposes and audiences that many, if not all students see as authentic, but, you know, they're, they're not always as strong at uh, making sure everybody is sort of has some repertoire of skills that is being built along the way. And so, I mean, I, I think the ideal version of deep, deep learning involves and, and schooling would involve some healthy balance among those three things. But, you know, in practice, schools tend to sort of be making a big bet on one or the other and then trying to fold in the other dimensions uh, as best they can. And I guess the whole point of what, what we could see through your work was you kept trying to say, well, how can this example we're seeing here um, where with whichever whichever domain it's in, whether it's with um, you know no excuses high or Dewey high or the IB school, 
how can we see this become more the, the accepted practice rather than the you know the exception and and I think that's the, the interesting piece of how you've gone about it just to read a quote to you for instance um, I think is rather interesting because it doesn't pertain to any one particular model. The most powerful learning experiences we observe were neither at the progressive pole of self-guided learning, nor at the conservative extreme of direct instruction. Rather, they assumed the model of apprenticeship or induction in which students became motivated by a domain and worked to develop or make something within that domain, but did so under the watchful eye of expert mentors. Do you wanna make a comment on that? I mean, I, I we think that, or I'll just speak for me. Uh, I, I think that in the debate between the sort of traditional and progressive poles, the apprenticeship position doesn't get nearly enough attention. And I think people who are on the progressive side would say apprenticeship is just, Dewey talks about apprenticeship, Montessori talks about apprenticeship. It's like part of like the fully full-throated progressive vision. But I also think that people, you know, who, you know, like who might use sports or classical violin or, you know, sort of more traditional modes of learning would say, yeah, there's a lot of like, you know, careful practice and feedback from more expert others. So I, I really do think there is this mode which is very powerful and it um, gets at both formal knowledge and more tacit knowledge. Uh, people sort of learn how the work in the domain, like how the, that work actually happens. Um, and so I think it's a very powerful model and uh, I think it's deserving of uh, much, much more attention. Would, would you guys agree though that uh... At some point, we're, we're all going to have to have a conversation about curriculum, right? I mean, because I, I'll quote David Perkins, um, you know, from he's got a, that little video on YouTube that I, I think is really interesting, where he says something along the lines of 90% of what we teach in schools is really kind of frivolous. Um, and that uh, he doesn't say this, but I'm wondering in order to achieve deeper learning or a mastery around something, there's no way we can cover everything that's in currently in the curriculum and free up enough time for kids to go deeply into the things that either we need them to go into or that they want to go into, right? So to me, it always comes back to all of the things that we're teaching, all the things that we're either mandated to teach or that we choose to teach for all kids and aren't we going to have to at some point just kind of say, you know, time out. Um, if really it is about developing kids as learners, we're going to have to allow them more time and more breath to go deeply into some things, but really not cover all of this other stuff that kind of quickly passes, like you said before, John, kind of quickly passes through their heads. And as soon as the test is over, it kind of leaves them. I mean, isn't that a would that be one of the starting points for the conversation at least? I think it would. I, I think there's a distinction though. I mean, when people talk about curriculum, sometimes they're talking about like the actual pacing guides and content that kids need to know in some cases. And in other cases, they're talking about standards. And I think the best classrooms we saw, kids were developing consequential skills and habits of mind and ways of thinking that are compatible with the discipline. So like, for example, in a you know, in a, in a history class, they're, you know, learning how to compare perspectives in a given time period while also understanding something about the dynamics of that time period. They're taking different perspectives. They're, you know, analyzing history, you know, they're debating, um, they're crafting arguments, they're, you know, weighing counter arguments, whatever, you can keep going on that. But you can, you can do that studying one thing deeply and, you know, cover, I don't know, three historical time periods in a year or maybe even one, you can still develop that repertoire of, of skills and, and understanding um, without the content, the stuff, the knowledge being, you know, so like skittering, skittering through things so quickly. Um, so I, I don't know when I, when I think about like, do we, do we need common standards? Maybe I'm not, I'm not opposed to them. Uh, I think different disciplines have different, um, levels at which people get dogmatic about how much stuff to get through. And so, for example, as a former English teacher, I never really minded the standards because they, they felt reasonable. And it, and it felt like you could get to them in so many different ways. 
And there were some things that weren't represented in those standards that I cared about, but that also wasn't about content. That was more about being, ways of thinking I wanted my kids to develop that weren't, uh, you know, being written down. Um, so I don't, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm winding here. Del, do you want to add on? Yeah, just that um, I think um, balance, but the balance is way too far towards the um, breadth side and way too shallow on the depth side. So like in British Columbia, they've moved towards trying to define like five big pieces of knowledge and five skills that students should develop in each grade and subject matter. That seems sort of reasonable to me. Like if you, if you do that, you could, you know, assure that kids graduate from, like, I think kids should be able to graduate from high school and should be able to, like, put on a timeline, like, let's say, like, the American Revolution, the Civil War, the New Deal, the Civil Rights Movement, and, like, the present. Like, I, uh, but, you know, there's, I think you could have, like, some breadth, which I think is a reasonable expectation for K-12 to public schools, and still free up way more time and space to do things in considerably more uh, in considerably more uh, depth. Uh, one example we talked briefly about in the book is, you know, ninth grade world history, which it really is like an emperor a week from like ancient mm. Mesopotamia to the French Revolution. Uh, you know, what if that course were organized around like why do civilizations rise and fall? What if you looked yeah. at five civilizations over the course of the year? I mean, that's like almost two months, like a month and three weeks per civilization. And so you could still get some breath. You could still do Western and non-Western. You could still do the Greeks and the Romans. You could still, you know, you could still get some breath and some like comparative structure, but you could really think about like, well, what does make a society rise and fall? And you could think about economics and politics and culture and society and you could conclude with, you know, America today and where are we as a civilization or something like, you know, so like there are ways to get some breadth with much more depth. But more than that, I'm getting excited about Dahl's idea. And we, we saw we saw a project that had a little bit of this in it. But like why back to the authenticity piece, why, why not start with like, are we are we, you know, is our civilization about to collapse? And then. You know, that—that's the through line question. I mean, but really, right? Like everybody's talking yeah. about climate change and you yeah, know, son, apocalypse, and like it, kids want to talk about it, and adults want to talk about it, although they're terrified, at least if I'm any indication. But like, that's the question that then, okay, looking at these various right. different Good. facets of history helps us understand, and you just right. keep spiraling back to that question. Like, my my son actually is uh, just took a course at Colgate called "Is the World Doomed." Um, yeah. and the professor, the professor wanted to title it something else, the last word, but, uh, they told him, he couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was, but yeah, I agree. I mean, those are the types of bigger questions that I think, um, would allow kids again, entry points into the, the conversations where they're interested in it. But yeah, it's a great point. Bruce. So, um, Sarah, I'm interested in, in, in yourself, Joel, uh, you, you, I think very generously and very openly talk about the profession and the role of teachers and you talk about deeper teaching and and when i say generous i think you are trying to understand the challenges the teachers are working under now but if we come back to for instance the comment you made about curriculum it seems that somewhere along the line we might have missed the mark in the way we are developing and training teachers and the medium through which we're providing professional learning you're directly in that space at the graduate school there and and I'm interested in both your comments about what you think is we need to do to help get a deeper understanding of the sorts of areas that you both talk about and how we can help the profession um, become more talented in this area. Um, well, you're you're being generous. You're saying we we missed the mark and we're not doing as good of a, enough of a job. I think uh, we don't. We, ha we don't have a professionalized workforce on the whole. We never have. Um, and that's not teacher's fault, right? There's all kinds of historical reasons why we, we have the system or the non-system we have uh, of teacher education. But, um, it, you know, the whole thing is is like all sort of densely clustered, right? Because you can't, ha I think Joel and I make a point in the book to say, 
teachers who find their ways to powerful teaching um, or deeper teaching, if you want to call it that, have themselves had very consequential experiences learning in certain ways within certain domains they, like as learners, not, necess not, not just learning how to teach. Um, and that they need those, right? You need an anchor in a, a, like a really lived experience and what it means and what it feels like to do authentic work and to do deep rich work in your in your discipline or in your domain. And then you need, you know, extended, structured, intentional opportunities to, to draw crosswalks between those things and then to try out ways of trying to import those uh, ways of being into your own classroom and you need a school that supports that you need you need a teacher training program that does but then you also need a school context that has some commitment at very least to exploring that if not at, like some established uh, practices that you can learn from and, and actually witness firsthand and maybe even participate in and so you know not having the schools that are consistently doing the deeper learning is one factor why teacher teaching is so under professionalized because you know, we're, like everybody's scrambling around in the dark. Not everybody. We have some great teachers out there, but the teachers who are doing the best work often are doing it because they have found ways to wall themselves off from the, the larger system. Uh, and they're closing their doors and they are, you know, creatively non-complying with rules uh, in ways that they don't want to be scrutinized for. And so it's just a, the whole thing is kind of turned upside down. Um, it, that's not a very rosy vision, but um, you know, we, we need to change a lot of things at once, I guess, is that the happier version is if we could find ways to simultaneously work to transform schools and transform teacher education and professional learning, I think all of those things could inform each other in ways that really accelerated change. Yeah. So to just, um, I think like in theory, it like what we're saying is not that complicated. What we're saying is most people teach as they were taught. And most people are in schools that are not prioritizing powerful learning, not their fault, not even the school leader's fault, really like at the district, state, society level. And then, so that's the like, that's the sort of normal pattern. And so then you've got some graduate programs where people are really trying to break that cycle. You have some teachers who experienced fabulous teachers either in K-12 schooling or in college or in graduate school, where they did real world work, which really shaped their view of how learning happens, and they're bringing that into school. So if we were going to sort of break that pattern, what we need to do is basically like the innovators of this generation have to be the people that like train the majority of the next generation. And those innovators need to be both in the teacher preparation space, but they also need to be in schools because if you get trained wonderfully in your teacher preparation space and then you go into a school which doesn't support the kind of work you're doing, like it's not fair to ask the youngest members of the profession to sort of like do war with the institutions that they're going into. So there has to be a sort of vertically integrated uh, pipeline and, you know, really successful teacher preparation programs, including the one Sarah runs, uh, have have found that by like partnering or in Sarah's case, like they have the school right there. Um, but, you know, by partnering with schools or individual teachers that are are aligned. But, you know, we're trying to sort of like move from one equilibrium to another. And that's the hard part. So I, I don't want to I mean, I wonder if one of the levers um, might be grades um and and doing away with them to be honest um the saddest quote in the book is the girl who said or the student who said but the thing i feel like most of the time is we have to choose between getting a good grade and actually learning yeah uh, and like yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna choose a good grade because learning doesn't help me get into college right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and and to be honest i you know i actually i did an interview with a group of kids at an ib school overseas and I said, what if there weren't any grades? And the girl, uh, an eighth grader, looked at me and said, well, then no one would learn anything. Um, so I'm curious as to, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the Mastery Transcript Consortium with kind of the movement um, that they're trying to start. Scott Looney's trying to start. We did a podcast with him too. And it, it was just a, it's just a fascinating concept that looks like it's growing and getting some traction. I'm wondering if if uh, if grades might be a first place where we kind of start to to take away some of these grammars of school that are inhibiting deeper learning. And and maybe if you could just 
quickly comment on that and maybe some other places where we could start in terms of those structures and systems that would kind of open us up a little bit more for the type of learning that you guys are writing about. I mean, I think sort of moving towards more authentic forms of assessment is clearly sort of like one critical lever. Um, you know, so we do a deep dive in the program on the, in the book on the, on a theater program at a school, the same right. school, in fact, with a girl said what you just said. And, you know, the kids see the production coming up. They know their parents and their friends are going to be there. And so there's a lot of accountability. Like there's no shortage of pressure to produce. Um, but the, it's all sort of towards an authentic uh, task. And I think in the best sort of project-based learning environments, the same thing happens. Kids get invested in what they're trying to make or produce and um, that motivates the work. I, I do think like if we were really going to be realistic, um, once sort of some like digital portfolio or performance assessment system becomes the like gatekeeping mechanism for college, I do think that would be better than what we have right now. It would motivate things in the right direction. But I think realistically, like what would happen is there would be a lot of efforts to make those things look as good as they can so that kids would get into college. And so at the IB school that we studied, for example, which was a sort of middle class school in um, a number of the teachers had come from IB uh, teaching overseas. And one of the things they liked about this school was no one was pressuring them to like get a seven on every IB exam and that there was sort of a certain balance between pushing the kids to try to like do the best work they could, but not like fetishizing the seven on the IB. And so at some level, I don't think there's like any solution at the end of the day that doesn't involve like some wise adults being in the picture and sort of balancing between the need to push and the need to say it's not all about these credentials in the in the long run. So in in difference to our audience, which I might say has expanded to 26 and we'll have a lot more through the podcast, obviously, um, we do have a question which um, has been thrown up. So I thought uh, I'd like to just share that if I could. How do we help teachers who are asked to, to be focused on rigor? and addressing 100 standards in a course with the end goal of high test scores focus, instead on the needs and interests of the child. What's a good place to start? Well, I, I that's, a, that's a hard question. It's a good question. Um, Joel and I have talked a lot before you, about this, but like any, like leverage all the possibilities you have at your disposal to try to slow down a little bit, right? So if you're, if the standardized tests are asking for a really wide breadth of knowledge, for example, the way that like the SAT twos in chemistry do, then then honestly, I'm not, I don't feel enormously hopeful there if you're really beholden to those tests. But like to my earlier point, if the standardized tests are asking for a range of skills, like how to, you know, write a critical analytic essay of a literary text or something like that, or, you know, answer multiple choice questions that ostensibly test that skill. Um, I think there's a lot more latitude. So like if you're in an English class, you're teaching high school English and you're feeling like you have to get your um, kids through, you know, nine novels over the course of a year. But that that is really like you're like, ask yourself, where where is that pressure coming from? Because if, if it's really about the tests and the tests are really actually about skills and understandings uh, rather than about content, then do three novels and connect it to more interesting questions and, you know, have kids do creative writing as well to do, right? Like the best way to learn how to learn how something works is to try to build it yourself. And so um, I think some subject areas, and obviously we're very high school centric in this sense, have more uh, latitude than teachers might think. Um, you know, I don't know. I had a department chair that told me a long time ago, I had to teach Shakespeare, but he really didn't tell me I had to teach anything else. So... <laughs> I mean, I had to get my kids ready for the test, but, but you know, I, I I could have made space for all kinds of deep inquiry that I didn't just because I had some internalized uh, sense that I hadn't been given an opportunity to interrogate yeah. that we had to get through some stuff. Yeah. So on that last point, I mean, the tests are clearly part of it in some subjects and some age levels and depending on the test. And as Sarah says, like there's some in some of those situations, it's just really difficult. But I think what we observed was much more pervasive than that that teachers would be teaching in a tested domain 
and would be teaching in this sort of teaching as transmission, cover the material kind of way. And then in a less tested domain, they had more flexibility, but it really wasn't that different because that was the way that they got used to teaching. So, um, you know, a lot of teachers teach at least one of their classes and, and or in the case of elementary, like some of their subjects or in the case of um, so anyway, so that usually there's some flexibility somewhere in your teaching. And so you could use that as a sort of space to try to do um, some more uh, interesting things. And then the other thing is that, like, ultimately, this is all just like a big sort of political question. So like, OK, so like, why do people care about the test? Because they think that they, the kids need to test uh, for college. OK, so like what they really care about is not the test. What they really care about is college. So like what they really want to know is that the kid has you know, done some exemplary things in high school that will be recognized by colleges. And so, you know, if the kid takes one fewer AP and they go and like work in a research lab at a college and they're, you know, fifth author on a paper that they were a lab, that's worth at least as much as like a four on an AP chemistry test. So, you know, I think there's the, the in the, ideally we would sort of align the whole system in a different direction, but until then, the teachers and school leaders that were, we saw basically like they created their own political space, like by being successful, by having memorable classes, doing projects that kids talked about, having the kids rave about them. They used all that to sort of like buy some space from uh, doing the other stuff. That's uh, certainly what my, the network of schools I work for, High Tech High, that's what we do, right? We don't offer any APs. We like stand on the mountaintops and shout that uh, to middle-class parents, believe it or not, and they still send their kids here. And so, you know, it's it's the, the you know, there, it takes some, some work to get there, but I think, you know, saying, look, our kids are still going to the colleges that you want them to go to and their life outcomes are still what you might hope for them. And in fact, we think they're better off and here's why and look at their work and listen to them talk you know, like present a compelling body of evidence and um, then, you know, it's not going to fix the system, but it certainly buys some 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 uh, some capital there. I think what's interesting, too, is that, you know, you talk about the power of the extracurricular learning the kids are doing, and yet there are no tests in that domain. You know, I mean, it's all performance. It's all actually, you know, doing something at the end of the day that you've learned. It's not about sitting down for an hour and filling out, you know, certain answers or whatever else. So uh, look, I want to, I want to respect your time. I really appreciate you guys uh, making time today. I'm just wondering if uh, it is just as a, a finishing up point, um, you know, for the millions of people who will be watching this, obviously, or listening to it. Um, if, you, if you had one piece of advice to a teacher out there who's in a classroom, who's listening to this and kind of aspires to this type of learning environment or learning experiences for their kids, or, you know, maybe there's a school leader out there who wants to make a change. I mean, what would be one place to start, do you think, or maybe the most, most effective place to start? Well, can I say two things, one on that and one on something you just said? So sure. one on the extracurriculars being the untested, we really don't think that's a coincidence. Like there's the sort of like part of the school where we know what you need to know and you will learn it whether you want to or not. And then there's the part where you come together to produce something that you think is valuable for an external audience. And we call that the sort of the core and the periphery. And we think the periphery is more vital than the core. There's a big movement in adults called uh, unconferencing, which I suspect some of your Yep. Uh, viewers and listeners are familiar with uh, where people discovered like the best part of conferences were the coffees. And then they were like, all right, well, what if we had open space? And what if we made, you know, people deciding what they wanted to talk about the center of the conference and not what happened at night at the bars? It's the same thing, like periphery and core, like the core is where this is what you must learn at the conference. But like, that's not really what works. What really works is you find people who you're interested in something with and you talk about them with that thing. So I think there's a sort of like a broader shift, which is like, how could we get more of this like peripheral, like way of being into our sort of core spaces? We think we would be giving up all this stuff, but people often really don't like the things that are in the in the core. On the teacher front, I think the thing we've all, we've said a lot about slowing down, which is sort of one part. Um, I think a, a second one is just sort of like stay in touch with what got you interested in this domain in the first place and what people who are in that domain actually really do. So if you're teaching writing, like 
continue to do some writing, be part of a writing group, continue to read everything you read through the lens of thinking about what's the nature of the good writing and sort of basically sort of like connect your core self with your teaching self. And uh, because all of the more powerful teachers we found were, you know, really had that kind of uh, fusion going on. Uh, yeah, I would add something on that along those lines, which is uh, we, we have this thing that Joel and I have each done and we've done it together and we've done it with separate groups. But, you know, if you ask people, adults who are gathered to like name their most powerful learning experience, regardless of whether it was in school, you know, give them some time and then have them unpack the qualities that made it powerful. It's like a magic trick. It's like every single time you end up with the same constellation of descriptors, uh, you know, with, with some variation. But it's, you know, it's really like pick a card, any card. Oh, no, I know where you're going with that. Uh, so I, I would say with that in mind, um, you know, if, if teachers have a chance to really think about when have they felt most engaged with learning themselves and when have they felt that they're, they have been most successful with students and, and really like open it up to, you know, that the random one week thing you did at the end of the year post tests last year that like was actually really fun and you felt like you got to know your kids a whole lot better than you had all year long. Um, and then what what made it like that? What were the conditions? What were the moves? Uh, and then like, how do you get more of those into your core classes? Like, you know, it's not, it, it's not gonna get rid of the barriers question or the constraints question, but I, I do think there's some headway we could make just by get like to Joel's point, just by helping people get more consciously in touch with what it is that, you know, why they're, why they're there in the first place. And can I just finish also by asking just if you could just touch on an area that you talked about, I think, which is, is part of a strategy of allowing this to happen, and that's the notion of buffers. You talked about how both from a school and even from a classroom perspective, and even at a district level, this idea of schools creating a buffer, I thought, was, was really well outlined in the book. Could you just talk briefly about that? Well, I can, uh, Joel, I'll, I'll let you have the last word on this one. I just was I, convening and we saw a really amazing elementary school in New York City that was uh, conceived out of some of Debbie Meyer's work, uh, not actually her school, but, um, and we saw it in action and it was, in, uh, you know, it was one of those things where like, this is actually what they're saying it is. And then we had the chance to ask the teachers some questions and the principal was on a panel and somebody asked the, the teachers like, what, what is it that your principal who's sitting next to you on this panel is doing to allow this work to happen? And the teacher who was quite young and not, you know, she, she wasn't like super, super seasoned said, she protects us from all the things outside of this school that we don't want to have to worry about. Like she literally serves as the buffer between us and the New York DOE. Uh, and she does everything in her power to let us, you know, connect to the core values of the school and the core values that we know uh, are, are, you know, driving us to do work with kids in this way. I mean, it was like utterly clear that of course the principal, her question to everybody was like, why are all, why are teachers so obedient? We need to stop being so obedient. We need to get better at, you know, like, like, uh, being those buffers when we when we feel like what what and the, what the state asks is not always antagonistic to learning, but sometimes it is. Yep. Uh, at Dewey High, they told the teachers we want seventies on the state test, not nineties. What we really care about is the projects. I mean, that's really like putting your money where your mouth is. That's sort of saying, hey, what we're, you know, what is really valued here is. I feel like in a lot of cases, there's just no clear message. You know, it's like your classes should be engaging and project based, but really like your kids also need 90s on the test, et cetera. And so just um, creating that space and uh, buffering, um, you know, there was a school in New York where the, um, the, the school leader um, had all the kids take the regents by the end of 10th grade so they could do electives in 11th and 12th. And they did some like straight test prep, like this is what's going to be on the test and you're going to learn it. And so that's like super like organization level buffering. Like we're going to do it here and we're going to create space. And then what Sarah's describing is sort of like more normal kind of everyday uh, buffering. But if, if anybody's listening to this who works at the district level or the state level, we are not going to get to scale by having teachers and schools feeling like they need to circumvent what you're creating in order to do their best work. Like you got to change the 
broader structures so that they are supportive of the kind of work that our most you know capable teachers and leaders are trying to do. Well, listen, you guys, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time. It's a fascinating conversation. It's a it's a great book. Um, as much as I think you articulate the challenges that we have, uh, I also appreciate the fact that um, there is some optimism that comes out of it and some some pathways that we can move forward on. And that I do think that there is a larger conversation that's beginning to bubble up around how we, we think about what happens in schools with kids and, and a lot of it refers back to many of the things that you talked about. So thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Good luck with the book and um, sincere best wishes on your work moving forward. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much, guys. Appreciate it. Cheers, everyone.